When I named this podcast Twitter Travels for Pete over a year ago, I had no idea how prescient that name would be. How could I know that Pete Buttigieg would be nominated to be Secretary of Transportation by President Joe Biden? Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg. This exciting news has prompted all of Team Pete to learn as much as we can about transportation. And thus, welcome to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about how can we put our modes of transportation together, intermodal connections, so we can go faster. And I have the perfect guest. Mike Schlichting is an expert on all this. I'm going to tell you why. He has been spudding these things for years. Michael describes himself as having jet fuel in his blood. He grew up in the suburbs of Chicago with both his grandmother and mother working for United. Before he could drive, his parents would drop him off at the airport on a Saturday and would fly around the U.S. on airline passes, never leaving the airports. He then studied to be a pilot at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, but fell in love with being at headquarters rather than the cockpit. So he then spent 10 years at United, working for the United Cargo Division and United Ground Handling Services, setting new airline operations, which gave him the unique chance to travel around the world from a first-class seat. Well, I have to tell you, Michael and I have talked about that. We have uh, shared that in common because I also can fly that way, but with Delta. Well, Michael then left United and returned to school to get his MBA from the Wisconsin School of Business, where he started the Rail Flyer Project on extending airline networks to high-speed rail systems, which then turned into the PhD that he has been working on today. So Rail Flyer, we're going to talk about that. That's fascinating. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Michael currently teaches in business and engineering and has been highly involved with the Hyperloop Group, and I'm going to have to find out what a Hyperloop Group is, and leads the Wisconsin High Speed Transportation Group, as well as a leader of the Central Japan Railways Internship. That's a lot. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, (laughs) Mike. I have to tell you, the reason that I even know about all this cool stuff is that my last guest, Paige Malott, recommended that I talk to you. She said, oh, you would love to talk to my friend, Mike. So how did you, did you meet Paige in a train related way? (laughs) Of course, it's a small world in the United States. So it's kind of funny once you're once you're part of the high speed rail group, suddenly it spreads like, hey, I know this person because we're all we're all aiming for the same uh, uh, championing for the same reason. But uh, once so it's like this word spreads quickly about who's who. So that's correct. So from from a train group. Okay. Well, welcome. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. Well, well, Sue thank you for having me today. It's a, it's a joy to be here with you. Um, but yes, so my degree is called Transportation Administration and Community Development. Uh, what's kind of funny about that, it's, it's really studying high-speed rail, but we also get into, as you mentioned, hyperloops and autonomous vehicles and hypersonic aircraft. Whoa. Um, but my main... Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're well rounded. Uh, um, but it it's uh, not everyone kind of looks at engineering 
for studying this. But um, while I always love to say I teach engineering, um, I actually look at the bigger picture of what would America look like? Uh, what would their cities look like in the future? And most of all, how can we make travel fun and enjoyable and fast again? So uh, that's really the overall theme of my uh, my studies. But we can get more details we'll get into economics, sociology, and uh, and definitely into real estate and urban development. So it's a it's a special degree that the university just created specifically for me and allows me essentially to take classes throughout the university. And uh, I become this this individual that everybody knows, but very few know that I actually uh, I belong to the School of Human Ecology in uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. So. They're assuming you're in, in engineering, but it's the, actually the School of Human Ecology. And it's looking at these issues from a community perspective. Exactly, exactly. Because human ecology is a study of humans and how we interact in our environment. And uh, um, that's one thing that you really don't hear much about when it comes to transportation. Everybody focuses on the actual technology behind it, but not so much on how humans would use it and the effect it would have on society. So it's put me in a great place that a perspective that I don't think anybody uh, in the United States has. Well, and that's really the most important thing. It has to be usable. It has to be something that we want and something that we will use. And I mean, you have to have the technology there too, but uh, we, you have to want to, you have to, it has to be in the right place. It has to be something that we want to use. Exactly. Exactly. Because, um, you know, it's a case of you might build a, uh, uh, a railroad, a passenger railroad, but if it doesn't go any place that anybody wants, what's the use? And nobody's going to use it. So I have this, we can get into this argument all the time with my my, fr- uh, my friends in engineering because they get excited about the tech, but then you actually stop and like, well, how will humans use the tech? And there's suddenly a blank face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And then you have to so, show that there's demand to show that it's, uh, you know, going to pay for itself in some way. And so that's this, uh, this cycle, right? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's, it's always a tough question because, yeah, when you're looking at future tech, and how would it work in the world? Where, who would it uh, pay for it? And where would it take it? But the way I look at it is imagine if you were in like America in the 1920s and there's these automobiles that are just developing and you're describing uh, to someone in the 1920s what the interstate system would look like. Uh, it'd be very hard to do that to someone in the past. But today we look back and you can't imagine life without an interstate system. Right. We, 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 we can't even imagine. So it's hard for us to imagine that it would be hard for them. <laughs> so so, so exactly. give me an example of something that, that we might have a hard time imagining right now, but that would be really, would help us go faster. Well, just the, what's kind of funny about this is Americans have a hard time imagining just using what a high-speed bullet train would be. In fact, uh, whenever I meet uh, some of my students or uh, friends who've never traveled, the first thing I say is like, have you ever seen the bullet train in, for example, in Japan? Because they use this technology in a completely different way than, uh, than we do in the States. You know, for example, here, you would never think of living in Madison and commuting to Chicago, which is about 100 miles apart, um, because just I mean, imagine the, con- the congestion and how long you'd sit on the road. Um, there are some people who do that, but generally most people don't. But in Japan, using the bullet train, 
you go to the station, you walk up five minutes before the train arrives and doors open, and then you're going 185 miles per hour to Chicago, making a commute of 125 miles each way commonplace uh, in Japan. So it's this uh, interaction with technology where Americans just haven't experienced it to understand it. Um, from the, when you go to the real, the real far uh, horizon, like hypersonic super uh, hypersonic aircraft, that's a whole nother world where, you know, being in New York at noon and then landing an hour in Tokyo, that's, that's a whole different world, but that's where it gets exciting. You get to look at what's future world would be like. And in, in so many ways, uh, one of the people I looked up to and can relate to is actually Walt Disney. Um, he was huge into transportation and future cities. So a lot of what I'm studying, uh, I kind of look back upon Walt Disney and Epcot Center and his vision for the future. Really? Yeah. You know, and yeah, oh, yeah. that's really interesting. So high-speed rail, um, a lot of this, let's step back because uh, you told me that you really got, first got interested when, when your trip to Japan. It was like, whoa, uh, <laughs> uh, we need this. It just is so frustrating to see that that it's possible, but but yet so hard to sell here in the United States. But um, you've talked about how we need to somehow link up rail the rail with um, the the airlines, and 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 kind of taking over some of their uh, what what is it called their secondary routes? What are those um, when those they have the puddle jumpers that we used to call them those smaller yeah. aircraft, <laughs> <laughs> the little little fifty seaters and below. Yeah, so it's actually kind of ironic because as you mentioned earlier. I, were, I spent 10 years of working at United Airlines, traveling around the world, and saw we had a, I was on a team that had to go to every country United Airlines serves. And uh, anybody who's flown United and looked at those maps at the back of the brochures had known, that, or on their websites have known, that's a lot of countries. So our team was in Tokyo, and there's a team of five of us. We had to go to Osaka. We were technically told that we're supposed to fly on ANA, where we got free tickets, but we're all in Tokyo. All five of us wanted to experience the bullet train because we've heard so much about it. So uh, we uh, we bought tickets instead of flying. And it was so such an incredible experience to be on the train where you never can even comprehend that you're traveling 185 miles per hour because uh, the, the tracks are so smooth and you're going so fast. Um, it's just so smooth and comfortable inside that you have no concept that you're going through the countryside so fast. But um, what really caught me was when I took videos of it and brought it back and all my relatives and family wanted to see the pictures of us on the bullet train. This is about 2003. Um, so it's before YouTube, um, but it really caught on of how curious uh, Americans are with the technology out there, but have never, ever had the chance to experience it. And uh, when I combine that with my time at United and, and, uh, Enjoying, shall we say, enjoying uh, the flight benefits? Oh, uh, <laughs> not the flight benefits, but the uh, the, the uh, intimate comfort of a regional jet with 50 seats. <laughs> if anybody who's flown that knows, especially those window seats, how comfortable they can get uh, in a little small space. And you're sitting there going, I'm flying between Milwaukee and Chicago, which is 70 miles in Japan or Asia. This route would be on a high-speed train, but here I'm doing it um, for all, in a 50-seater that is currently 45 minutes behind schedule, and I'm worried about missing my connection, connecting flight out of Chicago. And, uh, and that's really where I caught on, saying, like, this could be so much better. 
So that's where my love of uh, the bullet train came from. And then when I came to the university, I had the opportunity to expand on that project. And that's where the Rail Flyer project came up in. And, uh, and the whole idea behind the project is here in the United States, when we think of high-speed rail or passenger rail, Amtrak traditionally comes up in your mind, or it might be something like Metro in the Chicagoland. But in out, when we, uh, my first trip uh, as part of the JR Essential Internship, the first thing they tell us is you have to change your mindset. We aren't like passenger rail in the States. We are more like an airline. And when you see how, they, how the emphasis they put on safety and performance and on-time departure, you realize the, uh, the international high-speed rail companies, they, have, they act more like a, a airline than they do a traditional railroad in here. And that led to the whole idea of, well, if they look at themselves as an airline, could we use high-speed rail to extend the network of the United States, air, the airlines here in the, in the United States, uh, especially taking care of that 70-mile flight between Milwaukee and Chicago? So, so that's where it all developed. And um, I know as we talked in the past, uh, when you go to some of these foreign airports, it's incredible. Amsterdam and Brussels are my favorite, where you walk out, you come, you land on your intercontinental flight, you go through customs immigration, and you take an escalator down to the train station uh, where you grab the high-speed rail across Europe. It's, it's just incredible and so easy to use. Um, so that's, that's essentially what, uh, what I'm, my whole purpose here is just make transportation easier. So rail flyer. Okay, what's in it for the airlines? So this is what's fascinating because you'd think the airlines would be competitors with rail, but um, what a part of the research, what I did was I approached both United and American and I went to them and said, do you look at yourselves as transportation networks or truly as operator of just airplanes? And both, it was an easy answer to say, no, they look at themselves as transportation networks. So it doesn't have to be on a plane. Um, then through my analysis, the rail flyer, I discovered that uh, we could pretty much, on a route like Milwaukee to Chicago, uh, the airlines tend to actually operate that flight at a loss because they want the connecting passengers from Milwaukee to go to Chicago to go on to San Francisco or Orlando or Shanghai. So uh, it would actually, according to my research, would cut their costs by 10 to 15%, increase reliability from 60% on some of these, in some months with these short flights to 95%, um, which again, reliability, you hear that over and over in the airline industry, but it's not just a case of passenger being on time, but if that passenger mix, misses a connection to, on their Shanghai flight, um, that's that's a huge amount of money for the, for the airline. Uh, it could be, which could be in the tens of thousands of dollars. So it would be, uh, again, just increased reliability for the airlines, increased network uh, reach, because they could reach these smaller cities that they don't even serve today, and then increased comfort for the passengers. Right. They'll link it in there and and, and you can keep, keep the passengers instead of uh, lose them. Exactly. And uh, what's really wild about this is United kind of already has a model for it. They've been... Uh, they just discontinued it this year, but they had been selling tickets on Amtrak out of their newer hub. And just recently, last month, United uh, is selling tickets on buses 
out of Denver up to Breckenridge and up to Fort Collins, where you buy a United Airlines ticket, but it's operated by uh, by on a coach bus. So uh, United gets it. And then we're seeing this actually already in Europe. Uh, for example, Lufthansa, you buy a ticket on Lufthansa, say Chicago to Bonn, but you're, you fly into Frankfurt and then your second leg there is actually on a train uh, operated by uh, the the, French, uh, the German high-speed rail authority. So it's already happening in Europe. So in a lot of ways, I'm just kind of taking what's abroad and trying to bring it here to the States. <laughs> Good idea. But, but you're adding your own, you're, you're you know, uh, adapting it to our unique uh, American way of life here and the fact that... <laughs> Of course, of course. We need, and I wouldn't say that here in the Midwest. We've got to add our own little flavor. Like there has to be cheese curds and spotted cow on the trains. <laughs> right, but I mean, we're we're a vast uh, country uh, compared to to uh, Europe, and you know, which is so densely populated. So we've got uh, other other issues here. Of yeah, but that's that, that's actually one of the, the biggest misnomers because uh, I, I see the high speed trains map of high speed trains going from Chicago to LA. And that doesn't make sense. Uh, that, that's where you just want to fly. And this gets back to the connection with the airlines. Um, because high-speed trains, they are optimal for trips from 50 to 500 miles. Uh, 50 miles, take your vehicle or in the future, your autonomous vehicle. But, uh, but over 500 miles, it makes more sense to get on an airplane, just uh, even from an economic standpoint. So, so that's where... What you want is in that 50 to 500 mile range to have the high speed train that connects to the airport where you then that passenger can take the plane to L.A. or to Orlando or even to New York rather than a high speed train the whole route. Oh, yeah, that sounds that sounds like a great idea having that network in there and just thinking about oh my my trip could be a combination of autonomous vehicle to the airport and then uh, rail and then another autonomous vehicle in the future yeah we we can't we have to stop thinking of just one mode of transportation exactly exactly it's a silo where everyone thinks that planes uh compete with trains which compete with uh, automobiles. There's a component to all that because I always get the question about, well, if we build high-speed trains, what about autonomous vehicles? Like, and, like they're mutually exclusive. Okay. Exactly. And and what, at the end of the day, what I go is like, well, you know, AVs are going to be great, but they're still going to travel at a maximum of 70, 80 <laughs> miles per hour. I like to be on my train that's going 200 miles per hour that connects to the airplane that goes 500 miles per hour. So, um, it, it really, we have to change this mindset where everything's separate and look at putting everything together. And that's what you're working on. Okay. So you're talking about how fast the train goes. I, I really need you to tell mm-hmm. me about how, how these high speed trains levitate. Cause <laughs> when I was talking to Paige in the last episode, we didn't really talk, uh, uh, too much about how it all works and how, how it is. It could go that fast. Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. And it's especially fascinating when you see how the image of Hyperloop took off in the, in the United oh, States. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you about Hyperloop. And I don't know what Hyperloop is because, you know, I like to have my guests tell me things. So I, I prefer <laughs> I prefer to keep keep in the dark about some things. Ugh. Well, well, let me tell you something about that, because it's kind of funny. I was uh, at the university. This is one of the, the things I love about the university is you get so many different aspects and connections. Uh, that you can never imagine because I started the high-speed rail group at uh, 
the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But we ended up at a student org fair next to the Badger Loop, which was the, the Hyperloop group. Oh, funny. Anyway, and, and the first response is, of course, just like planes versus trains versus automobiles, uh, just throw in a Hyperloop there. And it's like, well, you're trains. You don't, uh, what, what, what can you do for us? And I said, look, at the end of the day, it's about going faster. It doesn't matter what the form of transportation is, as long as we're going faster. And we found out that um, they could be, in the end of the day, what the Hyperloop's really becoming is uh, a magnetically levitating, uh, it could be a tube or train. And we were able to be the feasibility team for the Badger Loop competition when they went to the SpaceX competition uh, in 2017. And I found myself there with Elon Musk, uh, with the Badger Loop team going, this is hilarious. I'm studying high-speed transport, high-speed rail, and here I'm at the Hyperloop. But it's this image in Americans' minds of going faster that matters the most. So going, going back to uh, the reason, uh, kind of going off on the sideline there, but um, the reason it's important is actually when you look at what the Hyperloop's becoming, it's also using this magnetically levitating uh, technology. Now, maglev has been around since the 1960s. So um, it, this is actually, it's not brand new. It's, it's completely safe. But uh, what's incredible about it is there's really two high-speed maglev routes in, in, the, in the world. One is a transrapid outside of Shanghai, which goes from Pudong Airport to, uh, to the outskirts of Shanghai. And then there's a Chuo Shikanzen, which is currently being built from Tokyo to Nagoya. And both are incredible technology. Uh, what's really funny about that is, as part of my MBA studies, the whole, the whole class went to uh, uh, Beijing and Shanghai, and I forced all 45 of my fellow students to ride the Transrapid with me. Because I go, if I'm in Shanghai, we're going to ride this thing for an experience. And, uh, and that, was, that was excellent. What happens is, uh, it, well, that was incredible. But then I got the chance in 2018 to ride the Chuo Shikanzen. Transrapid only went 235 miles per hour. Uh, the Chuo Shikanzen was incredible. That was over 300 miles per hour on a train that you would never, ever have any concept it's going uh, that speed. And, and you could ride it today. Uh, it's, I believe it's supposed to open in 2028 right now as a plan between Tokyo and Nagoya in 45 minutes. And uh, to, to go back to your original question, it's wild. It's it's actually more like an airplane than anything else because below 100 miles per hour, the the train itself uh, moves on on wheels. So you'll feel the bump just like you're going down a runway. But they have a little speedometer in the um, in the cabin with you, and then as you see, as you go past 100 miles per hour, you suddenly. They have a little uh, demonstration where the train lifts about 13 centimeters off the track and the wheels retract in and you're floating along at 100, 200, 300 miles per hour. The only indicator you have going that fast is they actually have lights like a subway on the outside and you have this memory of when you could see each individual light, but by now those lights are going by so fast that it's just one blur, one little blur outside so your window. That's the only way you can tell you're going fast because otherwise you don't feel movement like, you know, just sitting there. You don't feel it. Exactly. Exactly. We were free to stand up in the cabin. We were all, it was me and uh, four other interns. We were super excited. So 
uh, about this technology. So we're just like jumping up, looking out the windows, taking pictures of ourselves in the cabin. And uh, you could, it would have been, it's smoother than say riding on a, a city bus at five miles per hour. It is incredible, incredible technology. Wow. And oh yeah. So that's that like who wouldn't want to do that, right? I, I think that before we get to the three hundred mile an hour ones, we're gonna have to <laughs> settle for something. <laughs> yeah. Ba- slow it down. Yeah, slow it down a little bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Baby steps, baby steps, huh? Um okay, so hyperloop. I still need to know about that because there's gotta be somebody else listening who doesn't know what hyperloop is. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> because a little bit Sure. A little bit of background. In 2013, Elon Musk came out with his white paper. Now, uh, essentially, it was a pod in a vacuum tube. So what they do is uh, you you board into a pod. It's anywhere from uh, six to 28 passengers. Uh, the pod closes, joins in a tube where all the air is removed so that there's no air friction. And then uh, there's different propulsion technologies. Uh, Elon Musk came up with the idea of essentially uh, a, a, the air blowing underneath the pod to levitate it up. Uh, more recent has been magnetically levitated, magnetically levitating pods, but essentially it's um, going down a tube at over 700 miles per hour uh, just above the ground. So that's where it started in 2013. Some companies started up. They reached out to the universities to uh, start what was called a pod competition. And I believe the first one, it was uh, uh, close to over 20, 20 universities uh, picked up the challenge and came up with designing their own pods to bring to SpaceX's campus uh, out in L.A. and uh, run their pods in a vacuum tube. And I believe there um, I believe it's been five pod competitions. I was involved for the first and second pod competition, um, but it's still going at the SpaceX comp- SpaceX today. And uh, there's a few companies out there like Virgin Hyperloop, uh, Hyperloop t- uh, HTT, it's also called. Um, they're proposing high-speed ra- uh, Hyperloops throughout the, the nation. I, I will see is is the way I always look at it. I've uh, I get excited about the technology I can see and experience today. Um, but it's like I said, it's all about going faster. So if they make it happen, I'm all for it as well. Okay. So you don't see them as too much of a threat? No, 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 no. It's, uh, I, I actually see them becoming more and more like the magnetically levitating trains that, uh, the Chuo Shikans in than their own concept. But, um, maybe perhaps someday they'll be able to figure out the vacuum. So it, it has so many challenges that it won't, I don't hold my, uh, being a vacuum, it's kind of funny. Hold my breath. But uh, um, I don't see the Hyperloop technology till 2030, 2035 uh, versus the technology we're looking at you can experience today. So the rail flyer project. So why can't we get this done? So what are the, the limitations? What uh, ch- what are the challenges that you found? Oh, so for example, like Milwaukee to Chicago, the main problem is the political will, I think, and the perception. That, that's the main thing because the infrastructure is all there. It wouldn't be a hundred. We wouldn't be operating at one hundred eighty miles per hour, but um, that route seventy nine miles per hour is fine. But you would have the state of Wisconsin, the state of Illinois Department of Transportation, the railroads, the airport authorities, and there's just so many different parties. And um, part of the problem is there's a perception. Americans have been 
promised high-speed rail for decades now, and nothing's really come to fruition. And I just don't think there's a belief in, that it actually could happen. So um, it's it just, it, it's a case of, I just believe, getting the word out and making Americans more aware of technology that they're missing out on. And that's that brings me into my advocacy where I come along. So, but uh, but no, it's it's uh, some shorter routes. It's all in a lot of cases the infrastructure's there. It's literally just organizing it and getting everybody at the table to make it work. Okay, was that something the secretary Pete could help with? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm excited by this administration. Uh, believe me, I was a, I was very happy in November because I, I could see that it's it's a it's a different view versus just holding on to the automobiles and the interstate that we rely on um, so much today. Right. I mean, and it's like um, maybe just having somebody who's speaking out for it and doing PR and, you know, getting it in every, in the, you know, at the top of everybody's mind is a possibility. And then the other, other stakeholders uh, come along. No, exactly. And it's, it's, it's getting everyone to believe. That's why I'm super excited. Uh, one of the things we talked about previously is all the projects that are going on in the United States. Brightline is a company that I'm really excited about. They they're currently have a train that they're building from Miami to Orlando that'll start off, that'll be operational next year. They'll be going 125 miles per hour, but I just read yesterday that they're breaking ground on their Las Vegas to L.A., 200 mile per hour train um, that I believe estimates I've seen they might be operational by 2024. And that gets me super excited because I think Americans, once they see it, they'll believe it. And uh, um, so those projects I'm really excited about. Texas Central Railways is trying to build a a, a train with the bullet train technology from Japan between Dallas and Houston. And that's uh, scheduled to start operations in 2027. So I'm really excited about where we are today because I think we're on the cusp of this change. But uh, for Americans, I think it's just we they have to see it to believe it. And once they experience it, they'll love it. Yeah, because a lot of Americans don't go to Europe and Asia to see how um, it's done differently and and better. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So is there uh, so for funding, you know, people, I think probably think that, oh, the main stumbling block is that it's going to cost too much. <laughs> oh, yes. That's a, that's a question that always comes up. But um, one of the things I look at is when we go back to that person in 1920s or 1930s America, and if they were to see the bill that uh, the United States is going to build the interstate system, and I believe the final number was like $129 billion it was going to cost, they would probably bulk and say, oh, my God, uh, look at the price. But when you see how much it is part of everyday life, is it really it's a huge number. But when 330 Americans use it every day, um, it it's really is not doesn't cost that much. And, and when it comes to high speed rail, one of the, th- the myths are that it is cheaper than building that it's more expensive than building out an expressway. Now, if you look at the California high-speed rail numbers, that seems to be the case. But throughout Europe and Asia, they've been able to build a mile of high-speed rail cheaper than it costs us to expand the Katy Freeway outside of Houston. Yeah, we got to get. Yeah, we got to get that word out. Uh, you know, highways aren't cheap. Exactly, and and my favorite argument is like, well, uh, 
you know, it's never going to make any money. But last I saw, uh, the interstate system doesn't make any money. <laughs> but, <Exactly. laughs> yeah, but, but, but that's actually part of what my research is. It's uh, something's called value capture where, you know, you might not capture the money from, say, a toll booth or a passenger riding the train. But when you look at the economic development and escalation real estate prices around the stations, uh, you realize there is a huge economic uh, potential that you don't necessarily capture when you just look at passenger sale, uh, passenger uh, fare box. It's called passenger fare box revenue. So it's it's really hard to capture the whole picture. But unfortunately, um, when someone wants to make a name for themselves, they focus just on the expense and how Amtrak hasn't been profitable on this route or high-speed rail would need 30 years to have a return on investment. But when you look at the holistic picture of the potential of turning a Rust Belt city into tomorrow's smart cities, you, you realize the value, it is, it is a good value. Oh, I think I think we have a hard time thinking holistically. I mean, politicians and thinking it because their their positions are, you know, every two years or every four years or every six years. And uh, they can't they know we don't have the luxury of like, oh, how is it going to be in 20 years or 10 years? Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's a challenge is to take to find someone with a true vision uh, where it's not just, you know, what am I going to do with my career for the next 10 years? But what's the legacy that I'm going to leave behind? Um, that that's where it comes, comes down to because, uh, um, and that's where going back to me, that's where I always kind of see like, what is my legacy when it comes to what, what, what is the reason I'm working so hard on this? And that is the holistic view. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> From my little place in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, <laughs> oh it's, it's fascinating, but yeah, I can, I could see how you need somebody to have, to think, have the vision and think long-term and holistically, but you also need somebody to pull all the stakeholders together and organize it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's uh, getting everybody going the same direction. Do you think that could be a position in in a federal level? Like, like, let's think outside of like, of, of of the box, somebody to, somebody to coordinate projects uh, between states and airlines and, and rail. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the challenge is which department uh, does that fall into? If you look at <laughs> right. today, you have, uh, is it transit? Is it national, falls under national highway? Uh, does it fall under the Federal Railway Administration or who's mostly uh, focused on uh, freight rail or does it fall under uh, aviation? It's it's this in-between world that nobody knows really where it's fall. So oh. I wouldn't necessarily, it'd be funding, it'd, it'd be more of just starting a department um, for development of intermodal, greatness. intermodal, exactly, exactly. How important is that infrastructure package? The question is, we're sitting, we're excited about it, but uh, like every policy, it's going to be kicked around. Um, we're excited because it seems like the discussion's really not arguing about high speed rail or investment transportation. It's it's the other aspects because even the Republicans and their counter. Uh, counter proposal last week still had passenger rail in there. So we're really excited, but it's like any policy, let's, let's see where it ends up at the end. Because um, how, part of how I got interested in this was back in 2008, the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act, suddenly at the last minute, uh, there was $10 billion added to the bill for high-speed rail. That was not there in the discussion. 
but it popped up at the last minute and Wisconsin won the award for $810 million from Madison to Milwaukee and eventually onto Chicago route. Um, so that's where the infrastructure package, it has to happen. I'm super excited that it is moving forward. I think something is going to, it is going to go somewhere. Um, but I make, we're anxiously waiting to see when uh, either faster transportation or high-speed rail shows up in the bill. So, Oh, and yeah. So it's not, it's not done yet. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, that's why I said, call me when it makes it to the Senate floor. Then, okay. I'll, then I'll get excited. But it, at least it is, it is starting a national conversation about it. And, and that's what's really fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't talked about climate yet. And the ideas of going faster are... Is that assuming that uh, these ideas are going to be more climate friendly? That's that, that's a great question because that's actually what we're researching today with my groups because the high-speed rail has a potential of being 100% uh, gr- uh, renewable energy, no greenhouse emissions whatsoever. Uh, California, for example, is trying... I believe is planning on powering it with solar power or a combination of nuclear, which has no greenhouse emissions. And when you look at the fact that according to the EPA, 28% of all greenhouse emissions come from transportation, that means this sector has a lot of improvement to make. And uh, one of the things we're looking at, this is where we go back to the airlines, is we want to help the airlines with being a greener form of transportation. You know, if, if we could take uh, a regional jet that's not even designed to fly the 10, at 10,000 feet between Milwaukee and Chicago and replace it with a train that is operated with 100% renewable energy, that is a great story for transportation in general because those emissions never came out. The airplanes are free to fly up at 30,000 feet on the longer routes where they're more efficient and will emit less greenhouse gases per seat mile, and uh, the passenger in the end gets a more comfortable, more reliable experience. So that's actually something we're excited about. We're, we're working on exactly today, and that's another reason we really want to partner with the airlines in the future. Well, are those um, regional flights then, they're not as efficient as far as effect on the climate, replacing them, those routes, like, did you say Milwaukee to Chicago? Is the, the the dream? Yeah, Milwaukee, Chicago, Madison, Chicago, uh, Denver, Colorado Springs, Tucson, Phoenix. Those flights typically, because they're so short, and one of the jokes I have with Milwaukee, Chicago, is you're on final approach to Chicago before you even leave the runway in Milwaukee. And uh, you never even, the airplane, I've been on that flight where we don't even make it above 12,000 feet. And the, the jet engine was designed to fly over 30,000 feet. That's where it's most efficient. Well, I've been on a flight from Minneapolis to Duluth and it wasn't even that enjoy it wasn't enjoyable at all because I you know, you're just like all that that feeling that you have, you know, if you get a little motion sickness of, you know, takeoff and landing. It's it's basically just taking off and landing. And the way I phrase it, it's like taking a semi truck to go to the grocery store from your home. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a place in the set the semi trucks a great device Great device that's designed for longer haul cargo, but not to take me to the grocery store. And that's kind of what we do with the regional jets today on these very, very short routes, 
where we're taking them where they were never really designed and they're not that efficient. Yeah. And, and you were telling me also that the airlines, like they kind of lose money on these flights. Generally, generally, I don't have access to, I'd love to get to the day where I'm uh, sitting with their, uh, in their financial office, but I do know <laughs> generally um, because it uses so much fuel and uh, so few, pa- so few passengers that they would never fly it if it was just Milwaukee to Chicago, that they were only flying passengers. Um, they use they subsidize that plane, that flight in order to take more passengers, collect everybody from Milwaukee, and connect them through their hubs in the United Americans example here uh, to other flights throughout the nation. So uh, it, they, they believe they do lose money on it, but I, when you look at the overall net scheme, it helps the whole network be profitable. I see. So it's not as simple as you can't take it apart like that. <laughs> okay. Wow. So any, any um, other projects you want to talk about? So we've got Railflyer and, well, Hyperloop was, that, that, that blew my mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you working on to help uh, people go faster? Well, some of the things we're looking at is, uh, it's kind of funny. The one thing, form of transportation we haven't talked much about is walking and walkable communities. So uh, one of the, it's been a while, but uh, about two years ago, our group was do, focusing on smart cities. And what? how... Oh yeah! Is oh, this yes. like a jetpack? <laughs> no, 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 no. That is very, very much more simple. Much more simple. It is more like walking through a eighteen eighties old west town, where uh, you have a, you have your train station, and then you you just walk everywhere. Because it's one thing we've forgotten when you look at today's modern suburbs, and uh, we forgot how the. It, it's ironic if you go to Disney World, you, Disneyland, you see it. But the whole design of cities where you have a core transportation core and your retail all breaks off, off from that core with residential above. And what happens is it creates very walkable, healthy cities. And it's something we forgot in this land of uh, strip malls and having to drive a car to your neighbor's house with the current zoning uh, that's been in place since the 50s and 60s. So. So that's our, as part of people talk about smart cities and applying new technologies to cities, uh, we're, design, we're saying you build a high-speed rail station and form the smart city around that station that is healthier for individuals, it's a happier place because you have more community interaction, and uh, it's a much more fun and livable place. So. Yeah, walking. Yeah, that's a... Exactly. I mean, we're not making you walk a mile, Sue Ann. Don't worry about that. But uh, but the way I think is the way I say is think about Main Street USA when you walk into uh, Disneyland. How you have that train station and everything goes down Main Street until you get to the castle at the other end. Yes. Well, so this is part of the human ecology and community um, development. That just to think of the whole picture. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's at the the micro level. Wow. Well, what is your dream project? <laughs> so, oh, hard to pick one, right? <laughs> well, there's many different facets of it. My dream project is to never have to sit in a 50 seater airplane ever again. <laughs> I yeah, want to no, be traveling. Those, it's yeah, it's uh, it's tight. It is, it is, it is. But uh, no, my my dream is to help build a network of faster, easier transportation for everyone across the nation, where. You could have you could start off in Minneapolis. You have your meeting uh, at lunchtime in Chicago, and by evening you're you're uh, living it up on the terrace in Madison uh, with your spotted cow. 
<laughs> wow. Is, is the, oh. And you just like multiply that all over. And the thing about it is if, if people can move so easily between places, that means that those uh, boundaries between living and working, you know, are, are, are blurred. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And what's funny about this, this is actually nothing new. When you, when the automobile first became commonplace in the 40s and 50s, we saw the development of suburbs. Uh, towns on the outskirts, they were beyond the reach of easy transportation out. So everybody was uh, forced to live in the city center. But then the interstates and highways were built, which allowed people a better quality of life on the suburbs. And uh, that's how that developed. The only difference is today I'm looking at not just suburbs on the outskirts of the city. I'm looking at where Chicago's economy is merged with Milwaukee and we're all operating as one big community that's much more competitive on the uh, the global uh, marketplace than they are today. Ah, thinking of it that way. Uh, definitely uh, regionally. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think that's all. It's all definitely possible. It just takes your um, your research right? And advocacy and, and then some, somebody to organize it all. Exactly. And the want, everybody in the belief that we can go faster. <laughs> right. So we need, we need the public and then we can all um, help with that advocacy. And like you said, well, as you, you feel like once people can see it and they experience it and gradually uh, like the, L, um, the LA train, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and there's, is there, there's going to be one in Texas? Yep, Texas is 2027, but Dallas to Houston in 90 minutes. Okay, yeah. So once that's up, it's like, okay, we get it, right? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's like, okay, now I understand why everybody went to a smartphone versus leaving our flip phone behind. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's going to be a little slow rollout, but then we, you know what, that's the other thing you have to be ready for when, when it's going to just go, go crazy. Um, Right. Just have it ready. So let's just uh, recap here. So if you're going, if you can walk, you can walk it, then you should walk it. Right. So then, so if it get when it gets a little further than that, you know, then we go to the car. Yep. yep. And then, and so then as far as you want to drive your car, so your ideal and your dream is that trips that are 50 to 500 miles would be train. Correct. Correct. High speed, if possible. Correct. Right. Yes. And then over five hundred mile trip would be the a plane. Exactly. Exactly. And, and just would be seamless, right? Just like shh, just get there. Yeah. My my dream is you clear security at the train station after walking or driving there, and then you uh, get off your train and you take an escalator up to the B concourse at O'Hare to get on your flight to uh, Seattle. And then people are just are going to do it more often. You know, really, I mean, when you think about it, are we going to make this decision to, to do this or not based on, oh, is it going to be a hassle? Like, you know, I'm just going to, I must admit, like, sometimes I think, oh, well, I that's just like that trip I'm going to take is, I don't know, maybe I'll do it a different way because I know, or maybe I'll just won't take it this year because I know it's such a hassle to get to the airport or get from the airport once I get there and I don't have enough time. So if you take that out of the mix and in your planning, think, yeah, I can get from point A A to point B. So I'm going to do it. Exactly. 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 More trips. That's what works well for the airlines and you're, you're more comfortable. 
that, that's the main thing. No cramped little airplanes. Well, you know, <laughs> or I, delays in, delays in cars, worrying if you're going to make it to the airport in time. Oh my gosh, this is going to be my dream too. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I saw you say so. Great yeah, to hear. Well, <laughs> it didn't. It didn't take too much to sell me. Well, you know, you're not on Twitter, so I can't follow you there. So I'm going to have to follow you uh, in uh, what what. Much journal. <laughs> well, so we actually, our group has a website called, remember I said we're part of the group called the Wisconsin High Speed Transportation Group, or WIST for short, W-I-H-S-T dot org. Uh, that's the website. I have a blog on there that I, I do uh, all our mulling, all, all our thoughts come together as a group there. So that's called WIST dot org. Oh my goodness. That's a gold, that's a gold mine. W I. <laughs> W-I-H-S-T.org. Whoa. All right. So we're, we're, we're going to look. And, you know, I can say later on, you know, I, I knew you when, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping. <laughs> when I, you're, you're, right now at the university, I'm known as a train guy. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. What's wrong with being the train guy? It's uh well, it, it was kind of an acceptance process. I, I laughed because at the uh, student rec center, I had to run about well over a hundred miles, saying, "Do I want to be known the train guy?" But it turned out to be something fantastic, where uh, where students I've had students say like, "Hey, I know you because my roommate told me about the train guy." So it's it's been uh, kind of a definitely become my domain. We'll put it that way. <laughs> well, you know, at this point, you just have to own it. Yeah, yeah. just yeah, yeah you got to be famous for something. <laughs> exactly exactly the only thing i have to say is i have no model railroads at home but uh, my dad does <laughs> okay well that kind of makes sense to me because you're what you're you're envisioning i don't think they have model railroads yet built you, you need them you need a model community correct correct <laughs> hey hey you need to work on that with model airports right and model everything streamlined that uh, just uh make sure you do that only if I'm allowed to do with the Lego City set. <laughs> so, no, I, someday, someday. I, the way I always like to say is like, my vision is to build a 1 1 scale model of high speed rail. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's definitely, that kind of sums up everything that you want to do, right? <laughs> oh, exactly. my gosh, this has been so much fun talking to you today. Uh, thank you so much. I learned a lot about intermodal connections how we could go faster and rail flyer and i want to urge everybody to check out your website for your project w-i-h-s-t.org wist thank you now stay in touch mike will do (laughs) thank you again for having me today it's been a pleasure okay bye-bye thank you for listening to twitter travels for pete transportation edition i hope you learned something new I know I did. 